Good morning. As always, a, a joy to, to be together in worship. And, and I don't know if you noticed this morning, but that perhaps was like the most docile children's message I think we've ever had here, uh, except for my kid, of course. Uh, she was kind of nuts. Um, as we've been, uh, we've been going through a, a series during the Easter season uh, that you, you saw probably on the screen called Die and Rise, and we're reflecting really on the, the theme of, of resurrection and, and the restoration of life throughout the scriptures uh, with the, the firm belief that God's desire from the moment that Adam and Eve fell into sin uh, was to restore his creation, uh, to restore uh, our humanity that was taken from us by sin, uh, to, to raise us up from the dead, free from the curse of sin. And so what we see in Easter in Jesus is, is really kind of a picture of what we are promised in the future, that just like Jesus rose, we will rise too. And so our way of, of taking a look at this theme throughout Scripture is by taking a look at, at different accounts in Scripture where the dead are raised uh, from both the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament. Uh, we see this as, as a common thing. And, and what we see, I think, in these pictures of of raising the dead is, is a picture, a, a foretaste, really, of what God plans to do for all of us in the future. That just as, as, as we will be laid to rest one day, unless Jesus comes back first, just as our, our loved ones are laid to rest in the grave, so too we will be raised up from the grave. And, and when we are raised, uh, unlike those who, who were raised in Scripture, uh, we will be raised to eternal life, never to die again, just as Jesus was. And, and as I think of, of this theme of, of resurrection and, and eternal life, uh, I'm reminded of, of one of my favorite books by C.S. Lewis. Uh, his book, uh, where he kind of reflects on, on the afterlife in, in a fictional portrayal, uh, in his book called The Great Divorce. Uh, and, and I love uh, a lot of, of what he draws out in this book. Uh, but one thing that's worth noting, if you've read this book, or, or if you would ever uh, perhaps read this book, uh, is that C.S. Lewis himself uh, says that this really shouldn't be taken as sort of a doctrinal position uh, on the future hope of Christians. Uh, he, he, in fact, says that, that really it shouldn't even be considered a guess at, at what our future our future life. But really his intent is, is to draw out a number of themes about, about the Christian life and, and about what it means to, to truly have life in Jesus. Uh, in fact, he goes so far to say this. He says, the last thing I wish to arouse, or the last thing I wish is to arouse factual curiosity about the details of the afterworld. So he states very plainly in his preface to the book that this is not a doctrinal position. Uh, but while this story uh, may be fictional, uh, while it may not be entirely consistent with what that future world that we live in when Christ returns will be like, I think there's much that we have to learn uh, from what C.S. Lewis says in this book. And, and there's two things in particular that I really appreciate that he draws out in this book. The first is, is this picture of, of heaven, uh, or, or perhaps we might see it as this picture of the new creation, when, when heaven and earth really become one. The, the picture that he paints is emphatically physical. 
Uh, he, he describes uh, this instant of, of a man trying to pick up a leaf. Uh, and this leaf that is on the ground in that new creation is so heavy, he can hardly move it. And, and then he paints this, this other picture where, where that same man, he, he attempts to, to pick a daisy that, that's growing up out of the ground, but he can't even break the stem. And, and so this future world that C.S. Lewis depicts, it's not less physical than our present world. It is not some disembodied state up in the clouds, but it is actually more physical than the world that we presently experience. Uh, That if God is going to restore creation, if he's going to free it all from the curse of sin and death, then we shouldn't expect it to lack the physical characteristics that we experience. But we should actually expect to experience physical life more fully. Even more physical than it is right now. That that this present world is good and created by God. And the problem is that it's tainted by sin. And so God's desire is to actually remove the curse of sin. And that future world that we can hope in, that we look forward to, is going to be experienced very physically. More physically than we experience it right now. Because it will be experienced without the tainting of sin. Now the second thing that I think he he draws out very beautifully in in this story uh, comes out in this dialogue between two men. Uh, And and they're walking together, and and as they're walking, they're conversing. And and he paints this picture of these two men, and they kind of stand in stark contrast to one another. That that one of the men is seen as, as very bright, very physical, much like the physical world, that he paints this picture of. And he says the other man is, is like translucent. He, he looks as, as if he's a phantom or, or a ghost. That, that he hasn't developed these physical characteristics that, that the rest of the world around him has. And, and as these two men are walking and talking, the, the, the bright solid man and and the phantom-like man, their their conversation begins to turn into a bit of an argument. Because the one man, the ghost-like man, he keeps on insisting that he be given his rights, is what he says. And and this is just a bit from their conversation that begins to turn into the argument. It begins with with the ghost-like man saying, what do you keep on arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. Then do. At once. Ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking and nothing can be bought. That may do very well for you, I dare say. If they choose to let in a bloody murderer all because he makes a poor mouth at the last moment, that's their lookout. But I don't see myself going on in the same boat as you, see? Why should I? I don't want the charity. I'm a decent man, and if I had my rights, I'd have been here long ago, and you can tell them I said so. The other man shook his head. You can never do it like that, he said. Your feet will never grow hard enough to walk on our grass that way. You'd be tired out before we got to the mountains. And it isn't exactly true, you know. Mirth danced in his eyes as he said this. What isn't true, asked the ghost sulkily. 
you weren't a decent man, and you didn't do your best. None of us were, and none of us did. Now, one thing that that we discover as as this conversation continues uh, is that these two men, they had a history in their past life. Uh, That the the bright, solid man, who who the ghost-like man calls a murderer, was in fact a murderer. And the victim of his murderer is the ghost-like man that he's speaking with. But, but what is drawn out here is this really extraordinary picture, and we discover in it this sort of reversal. That it is the murderer who has discovered what it means to be truly human, while the other man, who, who is a relatively decent man in worldly eyes, he doesn't understand it. Because the thing that really steals our humanity is unrepentance. It's the murderer who discovers repentance. It's the murderer who discovers that he cannot find life in himself. It's the murderer who cries out and asks for the bleeding charity. But while it's the decent man who who keeps on insisting on his rights, keeps on insisting that he's a decent man, keeps on trying to find life in himself, and because he does this, He can't discover where life is really found. It's repentance that helps us discover where true life is found. And it's in repentance that we discover that we have a God whose desire is to restore life. And the promise that each of us have is that the repentant heart who who clings to the cross of Jesus will receive that restored life. Physically, fully, life as it was meant to be. Life as we see embodied in Jesus. We discover in Him this picture of the life that we're promised. And that's precisely what we see throughout the Scriptures. That's precisely what we see when Elijah raises this woman's son. We see that God's desire is to restore life. We see that God is opposed to everything that steals our life. This is is how this account goes. We see Elijah restoring the life of this young man. 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning at verse 32. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child laying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself out upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself out upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. You know, as we see here, we see Elijah enter this room and he begins to pray. And one of the things that is emphasized really here is, like C.S. Lewis emphasizes in The Great Divorce, is the physical nature of this miracle. The, The humanity of the boy is emphasized here. 
Elijah prays and, and then we see him do this strange thing where he lays himself out upon the body of his boy, putting his hand on the boy's hand, putting his own mouth on the body of this unclean dead child. His prayer is, is accompanied by these physical actions. And, and as the boy's life is restored to him, the physical nature of it is emphasized again. His cold, lifeless body begins to take on warmth as his life is restored to him. As Elijah prays and stretches himself out on the boy, the boy sneezes seven times, almost as if expelling death out of his nostrils as life re-enters him. And he opens his eyes, displaying that that light of life has returned to him. And as that boy is handed back to his mother, she bows down, as if acknowledging that she has seen the only place where true life can be found, and that is in the God of Elisha. The, the humanness, the, the physicality of the boy is not an afterthought here. It's right at the forefront. Right? The, 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 the story doesn't say Elijah prayed and the boy's life came back as if the physical life wasn't that important. No, instead, Elijah prays, and, and it's that physical humanity of this boy that we see emphasized. And, and I think that's what we see throughout Scripture, is that the physical humanity of us as God's creation is the exact thing that he wants to restore to us. You see, we have a God whose desire is to restore life. A God who wants us to have full and complete life, and therefore He is opposed to everything and anything that would steal that life. That therefore He is opposed to death. God hates death. It is His enemy, the last enemy to be defeated, Paul says. Death is a problem because death is the opposite of life. It, it steals our life. This, this is also why, throughout Scripture, why does God speak of sin so harshly? It, it is not because sin sort of is, is too human. It's actually because sin makes us less human. <coughs> sin destroys our life. Sin steals life. Sin leads to death. It takes away life. And this isn't just true sort of on a theological level. I think it's true just on a very practical level as well. As you look at the nature of sin in our lives, we can see how it kind of steals life as it was meant to be. Sin often gives this, this promise of, of life and, and freedom and, and, and joy and experience, but all it ends up doing is making us servants Slaves to sin, slaves to our desire, ultimately slaves to death. Pick any number of sins and, and we can see the way this, this goes about. I'll pick up pornography, maybe just because it's an easy one to pick on. But porn, it has this, this promise of, of sort of this free expression of one's sexual desires. That, that I, can, I can use this and, and it's gratifying and, and, it, and it feels good. 
And, and it promises that you can just freely do what you want. And, and it doesn't really hurt anyone, right? But all pornography does is it ends up making us slaves to desire. And it takes that sexuality that was given to us to actually turn us outward toward the other, and it turns us solely inward on ourselves. Porn doesn't give life. It steals it. Making us slaves to desire, slaves to ourselves, turning us more and more inward. Making us a shell of, of who God made us to be. But, but it's not just pornography and, and sexual desires. I mean, as, as people who have been tainted by sin, we, we find a way to do this with just about anything. We, we look for, for life and, and we look for freedom in, in our careers and, and advancement and, and climbing the corporate ladder. But all we end up finding is ourselves more and more enslaved to, to long hours to exhausting schedules. Or or we look for freedom and we look for life in in having more material possessions and money. But we just find ourselves more and more enslaved to to trying to keep up with the Joneses and concerned that I don't have as much money as that person or as big a house as the next person. Or or my clothes aren't aren't quite as as current as the, the other person. Life enslaved to that is, is not life at all. Life enslaved to sin is, is death long before we ever even reach the grave. Sin steals life. And we have a God whose desire is to restore life. And he is opposed to everything that would steal it. And you see, this is why we need to learn repentance. Because repenting of our sin causes us to turn away from that sin and turn back and look at the only place where we can actually find life. And it's a rather unlikely source because God has shown us that the only place that we can find life is actually on a tool of death. That it's by turning to the cross of Jesus in repentance that we find that Christ has taken death upon himself. He has made it his own so that we can discover life. On the cross, the source of life dies, is destroyed, so that you and I could receive not death that we deserve, but the life that he has won for us. And we know that that death cannot hold, death cannot overcome the very author of life. Because this same one who has died in our place, the same one who has taken the death that should be ours, has risen again and he has shown us that just as God created all things through Jesus, he is also recreating everything through this same Jesus. That that in the resurrection of Jesus, we discover our hope. We discover the life that we are promised. Life free from the curse of sin. Life no longer tainted by our selfish desires. And we know that, that even though, even though this work, this full life will not be experienced until the last day when Christ comes and restores everything, He is inviting us to begin experiencing a taste of that now. And so he invites us into this daily and constant practice 
of repentance. And so in repentance we discover that just as life is found in Jesus, life is never found in in self-gratification. It's found in self-discipline. Life is not found in advancing and climbing the corporate ladder. It's found in following the path of Jesus. We don't find life in selfishness. We find it in generosity. True life is found in following the path, following the way of Jesus, and following the one who has taken death for us and made for us that path into life. When we look in our our epistle reading this morning in in Revelation chapter 6, John paints this this picture of of the saints and, and the martyrs and they're sitting under the altar and they're actually crying out to God. They're crying, God, how long? How long until you avenge our blood and, and you, you execute judgment on those who stole our lives? Now, I know for certain that, that no one in this room has been martyred because you're in this room. And I would also suspect that that none of us have have experienced real sort of intense persecution as it is manifest in many parts of the world. But even though we have not experienced that, that doesn't mean we don't find ourselves crying out, God, how long? God, how much longer do I have to deal with sin and temptation? How much longer do I have to fight being a slave to my own desires. God, God, how much longer do I have to, to face the exhaustion and the pain of this life? God, how long? How long until you come again and restore our lives to us? God, how long? And we see there in, in that reading from Revelation chapter 6 that, that the response that those who are crying out are given is, is pretty much, wait. Just wait. It's coming. But you have to be patient. But we also see that, that those who are waiting for judgment to be executed, for their blood to be avenged, who are waiting for the day that their bodies will be restored to them, are also given something. God gives them white robes to cover them as they wait. God gives them the same thing that he's given us in the gift of baptism. Because here in baptism, we are promised that we have been covered with the robes of Christ's righteousness. So no matter our sin, no matter our, 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 our constant battle with temptation, no matter how exhausted we feel, we are promised that we always wear that robe. May that robe be your source of strength. May it be your hope and your comfort. May, may the promise that your sin has been covered by the blood of Jesus, may that fill you with hope. 
and may it give you the strength to wait. Because the God who desires that we would have life is coming again to restore it when he raises us up with his son Jesus. Amen?